you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to talk this morning a little bit about baptism. I want to talk about the importance and the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. I want to encourage you to remember your baptism, or maybe you haven't been baptized. I want to invite you to consider baptism this morning. But most importantly, I want to encourage you to think about the lived nature of baptism. Peter's going to call these little Christ- these Christians in these little churches to remember their baptism, and he's going to call them into a lived nature of their baptism. So before we get to baptism, I want to just remind you of one of, ma- uh, one of the major themes of Peter's letter, which is to encourage these new believers how to conduct themselves in the midst of suffering. All throughout Peter's letter, he's encouraging them to stand fast in the truth in the midst of their suffering. And he reminds them of Christ's suffering. If you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We read something uh, we read something similar last week when we were looking at First uh, Peter chapter 2 in verses 23 and 24. A couple of weeks ago, we read something similar in First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Next week, when you come back, we'll read something familiar again. It'll be in chapter 4. He's going to say the same thing in verse 12 and verse 13. Jesus is our example in everything. And Peter says, hold fast, regardless of what is happening in your life, regardless of what's going on, hold fast to the truth. He says it again and again. Consider the way Jesus lived. Consider the way he loved. Consider the way Jesus suffered. Consider the way he acted in the midst of suffering. Consider his death. Consider his burial. Consider his resurrection. And what all of that means to you. Our king will be vindicated and exalted above all thrones, above all powers, above all people. So down towards the end of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, says these words. After being made alive, talking about Jesus, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Peter moves from suffering to encourage the church to remember their baptism. Remember what baptism means. Remember what your baptism meant. Remember what it meant to you. Peter, what Peter is saying is really, really important here. Not only is Jesus, our king, vindicated and exalted, but baptism points to the vindication of all of Jesus' followers. So regardless of what's going on here right now, one day, one day, all will be, we will be, all things will be vindicated and we will be exalted following, as we follow Jesus. So he says, our baptism signifies our desire to be joined with Jesus 
in the way that he suffered, to be joined with Jesus in the way that he died, and to be joined with Jesus in his resurrection. And Peter is saying, in the midst of opposition, even if you are murdered for Jesus, our hope is in future vindication. Our hope is in exaltation. Our hope is in heaven. So Peter is saying, in the midst of all this, remember your baptism. Remember what you proclaimed when you were baptized. Anybody remember their baptism? Anybody here remember their baptism? Some of you guys, yeah? If you haven't been baptized, maybe this is an opportunity for you to think about it. I was raised in the Salvation Army, which is a non-sacramental denomination. That means we didn't use any of the sacraments when we were being raised. So we never participated in communion. Uh, Baptism wasn't a deal for us. There's really only two denominations um, in evangelical Christianity that are non-sacramental, the Salvation Army and the Quakers. Well, at some point, you know some of our story. At some point, uh, we left the Salvation Army, and we ended up in a free Methodist church. And uh, we were in middle school. My brother and I were in middle school when that happened, and I ended up getting tricked into being baptized. (laughs) Her name was Trisha. (laughs) True story. My brother jumped in the baptistry and did a cannonball. (laughs) There's some tricky language in this text. If you just read those verses, it may sound like we're saved through baptism. And you know that's not the case. Peter's built this whole case about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And baptism doesn't save us. You know it doesn't save us. But I'm just going to make sure that you know it doesn't save us. Give you just a couple of verses real quick, and then we'll come back to this. This is... um, This is uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. You might remember this story. Jesus is uh, being crucified. And one of the people who are being crucified next to him, uh, we call him the thief on the cross, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't say anything about baptism. Doesn't say, okay, hold on, hold on. Uh, We're kind of stuck here. You know, we don't have any water. We Second example comes uh, from Paul's ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's really interesting. Paul says this, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's not baptizing everybody that gets saved. I think it's really important for us to remember that baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. Um, you, this isn't the first time that Peter's talking about baptism either. Um, you may remember the sermon that Peter gives at Pentecost. The Spirit falls on all the believers, and Peter ends his sermon this way, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. A more um, modern uh, translation of that verse might uh, put it this way, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ as an expression of, of the remission of sins. Baptism is a public expression of confession and repentance. Baptism is saying publicly, I'm letting the old me go. I'm letting the old me go. 
And I'm taking in, I'm taking on the life of Christ. Baptism is this sacred symbol that ushers us publicly into this new identity, which makes us a part of this new family and gives us this new living hope in Christ. I want us to look real quickly at Jesus' baptism. If you have your Bibles, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's really interesting. Mark's gospel doesn't begin with the manger scene. Uh, there's no shepherds at the beginning of Mark's gospel. There's no wise men coming from the east at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel begins with Jesus' baptism. No mention of Herod, no mention of any of that stuff, no cows. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written, Isaiah the prophet, I'll send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's prophecy about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. But even here, John's saying, hey, there's something that's happening right here, right now, that's really important, but something much deeper is about to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to get involved. The Holy Spirit is going to get involved, and then everything's going to change. It's going to be totally nuts, but we're going to have to wait and see. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up here, because Jesus always shows up. This is verse 9. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee came and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I've been asked a lot about ba baptism or why was Jesus baptized and I mean, he didn't have anything to confess. Uh, he didn't need to repent. Um, so why did Jesus get baptized? Um, he'd not committed any sin. He'd not done anything wrong. And yet here he comes, standing in line with everybody else. Um, so why don't you give the person next to you your best answer? Why, why did Jesus get baptized? Give the person sitting next to you your best answer. Go ahead. Come up with something. that. You, why did Jesus get baptized? What do you think? What do you think? Why did he get baptized? I'm going to be totally honest. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you guys got it. It's kind of the million-dollar question. Why did Jesus get baptized? But here's what I want to, here's what I think. Here's what I think is the right answer. I think Jesus was baptized for a lot of reasons. But one of those reasons was that he was so incarnated with our humanity 
never once in Jesus's life did he immunize himself from our humanity. Never once. Especially the suffering part. And I think this is just his way of saying, I'm in it with you. Abject solidarity with you, people. I'm in it with you. All the way. And I think his baptism echoes a bit of our experience. I think one reason why he was baptized is so that we could hear the voice from heaven. I hope you caught that part in the scripture just a moment ago. That part about the Spirit. So that we would be infilled with the Spirit. And that we would catch a glimpse of what's happening there. And that voice from heaven that says, Now to you, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. I think it's huge. Mark starts declaring the good news with baptism. The voice of God expressing, right, preemptively, preemptively, profound pleasure. Jesus hadn't done a thing yet. Jesus hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't baptized. Jesus didn't do anything yet. No miracles, no sermons. This is the very beginning of his life. And God says, before he does anything else, I couldn't be more pleased with you than I am right now. You are the pride of my life. Do you remember, um, if you're a parent, do you remember holding your baby for the first time and you saying, well, you know, once you like do all these really good things, man, then I'm really going to love you. Or was there just this overwhelming, I couldn't love you any more than I love you right now. It's what Jesus is experiencing as he comes up out of the waters. It's what echoes in our hearts as we come up out of the waters. In Christ, his truth becomes our truth. You now become the beloved one of God. The spirit of Christ dwells in the life of every believer. Our identity now is grounded in baptism. Baptism is a public identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. One more passage uh, that I want to point out about baptism is in Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 6. When I meet with someone to talk about baptism, this is one of the passages of Scripture that I usually point to. Romans 6, verses 3 through 7. Paul's writing here about baptism to the little church at Rome. Romans 6, 3 through 7. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Picture the, picture the, Baptist, pic, pic, picture the baptism scene. Uh, we're going to have a baptism at uh, 11 o'clock this morning. But picture the baptism scene. We're buried with Christ. We're baptized into his death, right? Immersed. We're covered up. We're therefore buried in Christ. Baptism in, uh, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. What's happening at baptism is incredibly significant. It's the full identification 
in every way of our old life dying and our new life being a life in Christ. If you will, your baptism, if you can remember this, if you will, your baptism is like a funeral. The old man is symbolically dying, is dead. And your baptism is also like your birth. You're being reborn. This new identity, this this new family to be reborn into this new living hope, this new living hope in Christ. Our whole identity is now moved from the flesh to the spirit. Our whole identity is moved publicly from sinner to saint. Our whole identity is being moved publicly from unholy to holy. You are not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're not unholy anymore. You're holy. You don't live. You're not ruled by the flesh anymore. You are ruled by the Spirit. And it's here where we're given the power by the Spirit to live a new life, a resurrected life. It's here where we are set free from the bondage of sin and death. Just want to show you a couple pictures real quick of some people around here who have been baptized over the last little while, last few years. All of these people are saying the same thing. Old life, done. It's time to live Jesus' life. And I want you to know publicly, I want everyone in this church to know publicly they're saying, this is the time. Now's the day. I'm done with being me. I'm finished. And it's time for new life in Christ. It's here in the baptistry where you make this statement publicly and then you become a part of this family. You become a part of this family. It's not membership. It's just joining in this faith family. It's being identified as a part of this faith family and as a part of the larger family, the kingdom family, the kingdom of God. One other baptism story in scripture, super cool baptism story. Gotta tell you this one. You might know this story, but if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, and then verse 12. Acts through 8 talks about one of Jesus' disciples named Philip. And Philip takes seriously what Jesus told uh, the disciples. You remember what Jesus told the disciples? Go out and and make disciples, baptizing them. And then you remember that? That great commission, Matthew 28? Well, Philip takes Jesus' word seriously. He's just doing what Jesus told him to do. This is what happens. Philip leaves Jerusalem, goes down to a city in Samaria, and proclaims the Messiah there. So Peter's telling people about Jesus. And their large crowds heard Philip, and they saw the signs that he performed, and they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. It's amazing. So there was great joy in that city. And when they believed... Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You, you guys remember Philip, one of the guys that would hang around with Jesus? He was friends with Peter, and he's just doing what Jesus said, right? The, keeping the Great Commission. Philip's all the way down in Samaria. You probably remember a little bit about Bible history. Jews, Philip would have probably been a Jew, uh, Jews and Samaritans did not get along with each other at all. But this is where no no Jew and Samaritan are going to hang out. But this is exactly where Philip finds himself. He finds himself in Samaria. He's so compelled by the gospel, by the good news, that he goes down there and he preaches the good news, and then he baptizes everyone who believes. It's just amazing. The whole city breaks into revival. Uh, Verse 14, we won't read the whole thing, but verse 14 down through verse 17 
Peter ends up hearing about this back in Jerusalem. And James, who's kind of leading the church, they hear about this whole thing. And they come down uh, to Samaria and they lay hands on all these guys. And all kinds of great things happen. Uh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The gospel is being preached to all nations. This whole cross-cultural kind of experience is happening really for the first time. And that's just part of the story. This is the next part of the story. Uh, this is what happens next. Uh, Philip has had this great, uh, this great Holy Spirit-led uh, ministry, and now the, now the angel of the Lord says to Philip, okay, it's time to leave. Go south. Uh, go to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out down this road, and he didn't ask any questions or, you know, how are we going to get there? He just goes. And on his way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone, from, gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. This is amazing. And the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. This is amazing. Uh, this, this guy, uh, Philip, and this Ethiopian eunuch couldn't be any more different. And yet somehow God is stirring and he's bringing these two guys together. Philip's from Jerusalem. The eunuch is from Africa. Uh, Philip is most likely light-skinned. Uh, 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 the eunuch probably much darker. Philip is a dad. Philip has four daughters uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is most likely single. Most writers believe that eunuchs were called eunuchs in some way to express their sexuality. But Philip doesn't hesitate. He sees this guy. He hears him reading Isaiah, of all things. And so he runs up to him. So we'll just skip down to verse 34. Verse 34, if you're following along in your Bibles. The eunuch says to Philip, tell me please, what is this guy talking about? What is this talking about? It's what is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture in Isaiah and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, can you just see this picture? They're just talking back and forth. Like, what does this mean? How does this work? As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? This is amazing. And check out Philip's response. Philip, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized right now. The eunuch answered, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And they go down in the water, and Philip baptizes him. This is verse 38, he gave orders to stop the chariot. Stop, let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. We're not waiting any longer. Now's the time. Verse 38, he gave orders to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him right then. There's a lot going on here, but I want you to notice two things. The first is, this guy responds immediately to be baptized. The eunuch believes, and then immediately he's baptized. He doesn't wait until there's this whole understanding. He doesn't go to baptism class. He just believes, and he's baptized. Same thing happens at Pentecost. They hear the good news, and they get baptized. They hear, and they believe the good news, and they get baptized. Second thing is this, really important. The family of God is open to anyone and everyone who believes. The family of God is open to anyone and everyone who will believe. All nations, all races, all people, even people who struggle with their sexuality. Around here, we practice what we call believer's baptism. When someone makes a personal profession 
They want to come and let the whole church know or the whole world know that we encourage folks to participate in a public expression of their commitment to Christ through baptism. Sometimes we get asked every once in a while, hey, can you baptize me in my pool? Or could we do this like away from the church? I'm kind of embarrassed, like everybody's there. And most of the time we say no. It's really good for our church to hear your testimony. It's really good for our church to see you, to hear you. Every once in a while, we get asked about infant baptism. Uh, some of you may have been baptized as an infant. And we want to honor infant baptism. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about in- infant baptism, but we want to honor infant baptism, not something that we practice here. In most contexts, like uh, in the Methodist Church, uh, infant baptism is practiced as a symbol of what is called covenant theology. Parents are saying, the parents are saying, to God, as a part of our commitment, as a part of your covenant to us, we're giving this child back to you. And then usually, in most Methodist churches, like in the one that I worked in, when those kids that are baptized as infants, when they get into sixth grade, they go through what's called a confirmation class. And at the end of the confirmation class, those kids then can decide for themselves if they want to get baptized. And most of the time, those kids would get baptized. It was a real big celebration in our church. It's their way of saying, hey, my parents did this for me. My parents said this about me, but now I'm saying this about me. I'm making this decision for myself. Every once in a while, someone around here will ask about being rebaptized. Like maybe you were baptized as a kid and you weren't so sure, or like, like maybe my story, it was just kind of a weird thing that happened, and you say, hey, maybe I, maybe I need to get rebaptized. And we always want to honor that stirring. In fact, we've rebaptized a lot of people in our church. We want to honor the stirring of God in the life of every believer. But baptism is not like communion, is it? Like, we have communion around here every Sunday. You can participate in communion every Sunday, but baptism is a little bit different. It's more like a one-time thing. It's a, like a lifetime expression that happens once. I'm, I'm, I mentioned that my baptism probably not done for the right reasons, and yet... Each time someone is baptized here, I can look around the room and I can see faces of people who I've baptized. Each time someone who is baptized here, each time I'm reminded of this baptism invitation, this lived nature, if you will, this lived nature of baptism, each time I'm reminded of this two-part dance, repent, and then this affirmation, repent, confession, and then this affirmation, blessing, repent. Each time someone's baptized around here, I hear the, the voice of God just reminding me again, repent and affirmation and blessing. You're my beloved. You're my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Dead to, dead to the world, dead to the old self, raised to new life in Christ. Every time someone is baptized here, that invitation is given again and again. Every, that person who's getting baptized, everything that I am Everything that I have worked for or played, personality, character, commitments, passion, family, everything is gathered up and is given shape in the stirring of the baptism waters. Everything then becomes, through the lens of Christ, becomes our identity in Him as one of God's own children. And this diagnosis or this new job, or this new pain, or this new season. It's just another, just another place, another space that could be shaped not by circumstance, but by the reminder 
of this sacred identity as expressed through this baptismal process, a holy lifestyle. Remember your baptism, Peter says. Remember your baptism. One more thing, and then I'll close. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip back to 1 Peter chapter 3, because I want you to see the beginning of chapter 3. We haven't talked about it. So just want to go through a couple of these verses, and then I'll close. I'm going to read these verses from the message paraphrase. Um, so the first three verses of the message paraphrase says this. Same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, or the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Hey, really quick, you probably remember that Peter was married. Peter's writing this as a disciple of Jesus, yes, but I think it's also important for us to remember that Peter is writing this letter as a husband, and this is where the lived nature of baptism really takes on life at home. To love the way that Christ loved, to forgive the way that Christ forgives, to receive forgiveness, the way that Christ taught us to receive forgiveness, it all begins at home. These are the next couple of verses. Cultivate, he's speaking to women here, cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. For the holy women of old were beautiful before God that way, and they were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same. Unanxious and unintimidated. And then he's going to speak to the husbands. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives, then, as equals, so your prayers don't run aground. It's really interesting. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. <laughs> Peter is saying marriage is the most intimate human relationship, and it must be carefully cherished. If one desires to have an intimate relationship with God. And Peter is saying, this whole lived nature of baptism, it begins at home. A couple of us were talking uh, last week about Father's Day. And we were talking about, uh, we were kind of talking about what, what does it mean to be a good dad? We were sort of laughing about ways in which we could be good dads. And I think we said that it comes down to this one thing. You want to be a good dad? Love your kid's mom. And be a good dad, love, love their mom. Want to be a good granddad? Love, love your grandkids' grandma. Most important thing I can do as a dad is to love their mom. And then Peter kind of wraps it up here. This section wraps up this way. So, summing it up. Be agreeable 
be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. I love this part. That goes for all of you, no exceptions. <laughs> no retaliation. No sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job. It's to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what to do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval. Listening and responding well to what he's asked. But he turns his back on those who do evil things. This is what the lived nature of Jesus looks like. And this is what the lived nature of Jesus sounds like. Two quick questions. How do you bless those in your home? And how do you experience blessing in your home? We have been claimed by the waters. Baptism is the womb of rebirth. It's regenerating for new life in Christ. And we're drowned to the old way. We're drowned to the old way of life. The old sin is gone. Not living that way anymore. And being raised up, being refreshed, being rehydrated in the Spirit of God. Blessing. That's the lived nature of baptism. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your example in life in every way. Thank you for your willingness to be identified with us as humans. Would you help us grasp just how much you desire for us to know you and be known by you? And would you help us to grasp what it means to identify ourselves with you? in your death and burial and resurrection. And Jesus, would you stir within us just this call to bless and to be a blessing and to receive the blessing of others? Spirit, would you lead us one step at a time? We pray in your name.